This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, everyone. Tom Oates here, and we're continuing the conversation about aging out of foster care, specifically recommendations on improving the process and shifting our focus. Yes, employment, housing, and education are priorities in transition planning and transition success, but there are other factors that should be looked at and focused on. The reason? Well, homelessness, incarceration, unemployment, lack of access to health care plague many former foster youth, and at a disproportionately higher rate among black, native, and brown foster youth, along with queer and trans youth. So this is part two of a conversation with Sixto Cancel and Sarah Sullivan from Think of Us. Think of Us developed the Aging Out Report in conjunction with Bloomworks that shares insights gleaned from research from on-site visits with uh, five different locations, engaging more than 200 foster youth, former foster youth, child welfare staff, foster parents, and supportive adults. Now, if you head on over to childwelfare.gov and just visit podcasts, on this episode's webpage, we'll have a link to Think of Us and the Aged Out Report. Now, back in part one, we discussed the three themes the report identifies as areas where the child welfare system is failing foster youth and should be given greater focus. And that's healing and dealing with trauma, centering youth in their preparedness, and helping youth build a supportive network. I encourage you to go and listen to to that episode. Now, in this episode here, the conversation shifts to recommendations to both address and shift focus on those themes. We're really happy to have sat down with Sixto and Sarah. And just a bit of a flashback, Sixto Cancel was the very first guest on the first episode of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast back in the summer of 2016. All right, diving back into our conversation on aging out, focusing on recommendations with Sixto Cancel and Sarah Sullivan from Think of Us, here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Sarah, we talk about creating a culture of, of healing. So let's bring this down to the individual caseworker level. You know, somebody who's listening here, and what can they do in their day-to-day interactions with foster youth to kind of help maybe create that, like what we talked about, culture of healing? Yeah. I think the first thing to do is really in every interaction for all frontline staff who work with young people, to have as the first question be, how are you doing? Just a simple check-in on how are you doing? And this came up actually in some research we've done subsequently that we heard over and over and over again. Young people said every interaction with every staff should be, how are you doing? And give me a moment to actually just share how I'm doing. So that's a first simple thing. Um, The second one is to reach out um, to young people to check on in them even when you don't need something between the report cycles, between the court cycles, you know, check in on them periodically to see how they're doing. That's something that not only is obviously nice to do, but really builds trust and can be really affirming for young people who feel like, okay, you really do care about me more than just what you need to submit your report. And we all know that staff are very, very overworked and 
So it's not, it's not at all because, you know, people don't care. Like we get that people are, are, you know, have high caseloads and all this, but when we prioritize other things above the healing from trauma, those other things can come first. So this is what really centering the healing from trauma could look like. It's, it's looking like saying, Hey, as my first question, I'm going to ask how you're doing. Hey, in between court report cycles and case cycles, I'm going to ask you how you're doing. That's really what centering it can look like, even in a day-to-day basis. And then while this next one will take structural changes, I think the case manager can be an important, and the frontline staff can be an important distributor of this, is it's really our vision right now, our working vision at Think of Us, that young people could be presented periodically during time and care with a long list of modalities they could potentially choose from to heal from trauma. Obviously, right now, we kind of bubble trauma up into mental health and foster care and pretty much just pursue psychiatric diagnoses with treatment, which are either through psychotropic medication or through talk therapy, both which emerging research is showing are not always the best modalities for healing, healing trauma. And we also talk to a lot of young people who don't love those modalities. So you know, could we expand what the options are? Because we know there are so many different pathways to healing trauma. And could we present those to young people and let them know what options might look like, let foster youth engage with what's interesting to them and help let caseworkers help shepherd them into those things, which can be anywhere from, you know, pursuing a favorite like exercise or sport, if that's one, spending more time with siblings, if that's one, spending time in nature, all these things we heard from foster youth that they developed their own healing mechanisms and coping mechanisms outside of what the system offered, which was anything to one person really liked to take hot showers. Others joined an anime community online. Another person found sleep to be like really focusing on sleep to be very therapeutic. So foster youth do find their own avenues to healing, but how could caseworkers actually support that by encouraging young people in those pathways that they're most interested in? demonstrating that it's a priority is you know kind of opening up the door that we we understand healing we accept healing we promote healing i, I think that can just go a, a long way um so that's you know kind of at that caseworker level but in agency itself and six so go go ahead if we you know we don't want to miss the point on that in that one-to-one interaction is is important so go ahead one thing i also just w- would love to mention is that you know, unlike other forms of trauma, like if I was in a car accident, um, you know, every time I get near, what we see for some folks is that when you get near a big bang, it's startling and it's triggering, right? And so the trauma is related to these incidents, right? A smell, a big noise, a familiar environment. The trauma around being in foster care is relational. It is the experience of like, being detached from your your origin, right? Whether that was your biological mother and father, sometimes it's grandma, but it's that family detachment. And so it's actually intimacy and the relationship that can be triggering. And then on top of that experience, the way that we inherited the system, which is if this placement doesn't work for you, if you don't fit in, if you misbehave too much, then you're going to find yourself in a new placement after you just heard someone say three weeks ago, I love you, you're a part of our family, you, you know, we're so happy to have you here. But then obviously that love wasn't strong enough or what happened is what goes through our brain when then you find yourself in a new position. So every interaction then with the, with the, the frontline staff for me is an opportunity to have 
one step closer towards healing because something has to offset the system-induced trauma that will occur. And it will occur and it will be induced by the system because of the very nature of how the system is structured. So if you have a frontline person who can understand you might be having a reaction, the appropriate reaction in many cases, to the traumatic experiences that you're having, you know what? You no longer hear their tone as an attitude towards you. You no longer um, decide that, hmm, I don't know if they're worthy or ready for that trip that we need or taking the other young people on or that extra gift card that happens during Christmas, right? Like these are the things that are even more sometimes hurtful that young people will notice in the behavior of a frontline staff person than actually some of the things that, you know, we, we have sometimes go through. Hmm. It's easy to say there are bad people in this world and that's why they treat me this way. It becomes hard to accept why am I not good enough and this person is not allowing blank to happen between us. And Sixto, I think that's such a great point. And I think that makes me think that really one of the primary primary ways that frontline staff can be most useful here is really helping to decode the behavior with a trauma-informed lens. To exactly your point, what we do a lot of times is that young people, so all foster youth have experienced trauma. Most experience trauma before care, all experience the trauma of removal of some kind. And then many foster youth obviously experience additional traumas once they're in foster care. So all have experienced trauma and that will have to express itself in some symptomatic way, whether it's through behavior or through a health issue or through relational issue or through a social issue, it will manifest in some way. But what we tend to do to Sixo's point, rather than healing the root cause of the trauma, we try to address those symptoms. And a lot of times we punish young people for displaying the very symptoms of trauma that to your point, Sixto, are actually normal responses. We should be concerned if they didn't express those responses to trauma. And I'll give one very good example of how a caseworker could help is with running away. And now I think there's a lot to know and understand about why foster youth run away sometimes. But one very simple explanation is that the stress response is fight, flight, or freeze. You know, fleeing is one of the known stress responses. And I think having that in mind, or at least top of mind, when caseworkers are deciding how they're going to adjudicate, because a lot of times we'll, something like that will be met with a punishment when really maybe that's exactly the time we should have an empathetic lens to saying, um, you know, what's really going on here? Was a trigger just was, was the young person just triggered in some way? And actually this is a, a, an expression of the trauma. So just building on what frontline staff can do, I think really having that, um, that empathetic lens into really being well-educated personally on how trauma shows up from young people will really help the young people they work with, I think. So with the caseworker level, and there's a lot, and just and there's that mind shift in, in how a caseworker can approach, what can an agency do maybe to incorporate healing within its system or to foster that within those caseworkers, knowing that there's also a lot of turnover with caseworkers as well. So I'm curious to think, where can you start to create that culture of healing, you know, maybe within an agency versus within the individual relationship? When I think about at the agency level, I think that's where you need leadership to say, this is how we're viewing it, right? Um, and so 
to not reinforce the systematic um, kind of responses that say, oh, you had this type of behavior or you reacted in this way. So the policy is going to equal that you can't do this, right? And so we've seen that type of um, structure inside of an agency. The other thing I would say is that above the agency though, which is I think what we're, in order to really get at this problem is that we actually had to fundamentally change the what's feeding the agency, which is for many times when we look at funding and like how to get services to young people, you need a diagnosis. You need to be able to say, this is what this is. So then that way Medicaid can reimburse for this service. And then you have now this service available. So if to expect agencies and, and staff to kind of have this dramatic shift, it almost feels unfair to me because what's actually the biggest monster here is that the way that I can get any type of, um, let me rephrase by saying, what seems like the biggest type of monster here is that the way that a lot of things are funded um, in terms of intervention for young people is that you have to be able to be able to charge it to Medicaid. To charge it to Medicaid, you need a diagnosis. So now we're pathologizing trauma. We are creating this, you know, these diagnoses to be able to get people help. And that becomes, I believe, some of the intergenerational cycles of saying, oh, you had a problem and this is how we've now treated you and this is how we've now limit you, limited you or, or have dealt with you, right, as a system. And then that starts to trickle down in, in, from one generation to the next. You start to take a look at, you know, where the system becomes a system, right? And it stops becoming relationships. Uh, and, and that's where... This is where, unfortunately, with something so large, checking the box becomes a requirement. And, and you guys talked about this at the, at the, you know, when we very first started this conversation of, you know, kind of hacking bureaucracy, right? And so there's a, there's a good example right there. Um, along with this kind of this, this, this you know, I guess, a triangle of relationships that can be in, in, within a, a youth's life are those supportive adults, right? Those, those foster parents. Um, and this goes back to an early part in the conversation of, hey, when I'm sad, just let me be sad, right? Um, so the guidance that you would then give for, for, for those who are in a young person's life, uh, be it foster parents, be it supportive adults, be it somebody who's just, who's just there, right? Who's present. How, how can these folks maybe help in terms of healing? Yeah, I think it's such a great question. And to Sixto's point earlier about how for foster youth, much of the core trauma, not all of it, but for much of the core trauma is around relationship, that literally being in committed relationship to young people will help heal the trauma. So young, so supportive adults who stick around and show up when they say they're going to show up and do what they say they're going to do, that is a way to help heal the trauma of relationships. So that's just one is, and you know, you hear it from foster youth all the time, like they, and from staff, foster youth just want people who are going to stick around. And I think in some ways that's, that's why foster youth, I think, and I'm sure, and I'm sure many other people, but foster youth, I think sometimes test relationships, um, because they want to know, are you going to be there or not? You know? And so having those strong relationships, um, is, is critical. So that's one. But then I think beyond that, you know, ways to help are really exposing the foster youth in your life to other potential modalities and encouraging the things in them that they're interested in. And I think, you know, that can look like a whole bunch of things. It can look like a sport that they're really interested in or a hobby that they're really interested in. And that can help, you know, build the capacity in the community that ultimately can help heal from the trauma. And then I think, 
you know, strong adults who can open up and share about how they're, you know, doing self-care, how they have overcome the struggles in their life and share those things and be really, you know, be really strong adults for these young people and show what it looks like to overcome hardship. I think that those are great models and great ways that foster parents and supportive people can show up for young people. There's a lot of ways, and if healing starts, you know, uh, I guess from the core, it's it's the it's the first of the kind of three pillars that you guys addressed with in aging out, and it it almost all starts with with trauma and recognizing and healing, um, and there are those relationships and there's communication involved with it, and that sort of moves to the recommendations for for the the idea of a, of a youth centered or a youth driven plan. <clears throat> so for those caseworkers, where when they start thinking about preparedness. Maybe what are some of the easy ways, and we talked about like, you know, putting youth at the center. What are some of those easy ways to put youth in positions to kind of shape and drive and, you know, maybe chart their own path for preparation? I think some of the things that come to me first is um, to have a true, authentic experience is you need exposure. And so I think we try to think about what are the easy ways. And I'm like, it's actually just hard work, right? Like, And it's work that we, by default, have to make sure we're not being manipulative in it because the way that the system is set up is that if I wanted housing as the 19-year-old me, then I had to go to college. There wasn't an opportunity not to go to college because then there wasn't funding for me to do something else. So, um, and, and, And when I was going to college, what I was petrified by was the fact that I had went to a failing school, failing school, so my writing abilities were very poor. And the chances of me actually failing out of college were very high because I was coming in with such a deficiency. And so I was, you know, lucky enough to have that awareness and to work with people to say, let me go ahead and pick a college based on my writing abilities where they will actually work with me all the way through, Um, you know, have the same teacher for a whole year and a half in English so that I can build that skill set up. But the reality is, is that that is already a predestined track, right? And I'm all for young people going to college, but I think it's so important that when we talk about preparedness, we actually expose young people to a variety of different experiences that then they can actually have some real voice and choice around what is it that they want to do and they see fit for themselves to be able to do that. Yeah, and just to build on that, I'll also share that, you know, this is a capacity that we need to start building from essentially the time young people enter care. So what happens too often is that we have a system where social workers and case managers do things for you. And then the moment you turn 18, you're supposed to know how to do them yourself. And a better way would be, could could we be building that capacity over time? And part of that capacity looks like helping you understand what you actually want and helping to advocate for what you want and to see that through. And so easy ways that are also very affirming that we could be incorporating that all throughout the time in care is that think of us advocates for basically as soon as possible, the system asks the young person, where do you want to be living? And that at all times from first placement to placement changes, we always ask the question, where do you wanna be living? And then we do everything in our power as a system to try to make that placement possible. And so that's a simple way. I mean, it's a, it's a radical way, but a simple way that that could start building the skills for preparedness because now you have a young person thinking like, 
oh, I could have wants. Oh, I have agency. And now when we're getting 18, 21, it's not so crazy to think, where do I want to be living now? <laughs> like We've actually had the chance to think about it throughout. And then, you know, obviously when it comes to the goals, um, we really need to provide open-ended ways for people to share their goals. Now that all sounds good and great, but the trouble is the system doesn't always like what some of you's goals are. And that's a real thing that we've got to sort out. And one good example of this is, as we know from the Midwest study and other studies, like a place where a large percentage of people go after they age out of care is back to the bio family. And we all like to think that that doesn't happen, but the research shows that we know it happens a good amount of time and foster youth aren't going to reveal, and let's say it's not even moving back, but let's just say they personally have the goal of having a stronger relationship or any relationship with family once they age out. They're not going to reveal that goal if they don't think that goal is going to be respected and well met. And so we're going to have to do some adjustment on our side to if we really want to help achieve youth goals that they're going to do when they turn 18 or 21 anyway, so we might as well help them be prepared for them. We're going to have to do some adjustment on our side to figure out how we're going to handle goals that young people, that the system will, will say that it doesn't like. And obviously this, you see a lot with other relationships where, you know, we see for youth in extended foster care, you know, the state get, will get to decide, get to approve the placement and where they live in order to get the EFC check for housing. But young people will live with boyfriends and girlfriends, significant others, and they can sometimes be denied their payment because of that setting. So we're going to have to, if we really want to know how to help young people achieve their goals, we're going to have to be prepared to do some adjusting on, on some ways that we haven't budged before. There's a big control aspect that falls under that and who's got the decision-making power. And, and you, know, you talked about giving a young person agency as maybe as they're, you know, maybe a little younger, but giving them kind of that, that understand, kind of flexing that muscle, right, of, of, of using their agency and, and planning and looking forward. Yet at the same time, if you want somebody to flex that muscle, you have to give them the freedom to move. Right. And so there's a that's a big control aspect. And I'm not sure we've got an answer for that yet, do we? No, I don't think we have. a. a, a I think we have the beginnings of something. Right. So when I think of this, it's like we now know that the re, that the neuroscience says young people need agencies to have a healthy development, to, to, to have healthy development. And when I think about the system, the system does um, have this empower dynamic that came from, you know, just rooted in a lot of colonialism, racism around there's a person who knows who can fix your life, they can save you, right? So the power dynamic that we've inherited causes this sense of control. What's reinforcing that sense of control, in my opinion, is the actual liability that's attached. So the fact is, is that what states have gotten sued over have been things like the overprescription of medication, too much movement, um, um, when there was someone ran away and X happens, right? So like what we've done is that we've we, we the way that systems are being held accountable is in lawsuits that then are attached to, OK, how much risk can we mitigate now? And so if we saw more lawsuits, like say around we had poor outcomes for young people, period. Right. Like it's, it's just unacceptable that we're aging out young people to homelessness. Then all of a sudden, I believe we'll start to see the shift in the system 
to go ahead and act differently. But I believe that's actually the wrong pathway when we're basing our system decision based on what is the liability uh, that you can sue for, because that's not incentivizing what's actually what we know to be in the best interest of young people. And so how do we actually move away from a system that is compliance driven, that is that will shift when it is the power of the courts intervening in that way? How do we actually see system transformation when we actually are saying, okay, there's new science, new understanding around healing, new understanding around trauma, and let's go ahead and try to shift to these type of models. That's a shift that's clearly going to take a lot of effort, a lot of energy, you know, a, a lot, a lot of time, and then rinse, wash, repeat, have those same conversations, and you know, start to point to the evidence of of of, of what works. Um, guys, I want to shift to that third pillar and, and think about moving, you know, recommendations moving forward. To when we talked about identifying supportive networks and, and helping engage you to identify and, and maybe leverage some of those. You had mentioned a little bit in terms of the questions to be asked or how to help. Uh, a young person uh, identify what is a, who is a supportive adult in their life. So what are some of those other techniques or questions that caseworkers may be able to, to use easily when they're thinking about mapping out somebody's supportive network? The first thing that comes to mind for me is it is your relationship with that young person. If the young person cannot trust you, there's no way in hell they're about to trust you with what might be causing them anxiety around their connection to someone, right? And so that's the first thing I would say. The second is going to be the relationship and that experience that the young person's having with the system. We heard from so many young people that they literally just don't trust the system to be interacting with the adults in their life. What are you going to say about me? What is going to happen to them? Are they going to get an investigation now? What bad things might they? Uh, what, might, what bad things might happen to them too? And so I think when I think about a worker who's asking themselves, how do I reveal, you know, get this young person to reveal? I think the first thing is like, what is your relationship? How do you show up in the world for them? And then for what purpose are you going to try to engage their supportive adults? Because if it's just for the purpose of placement, we know that that might not be the best. But are you going to do everything in your power just to make sure that there's connection that there is opportunity for, for engagement that doesn't have that alternative motive. Because one thing that people who are in that flight freeze or, or, or fight mode can sense is when there's like an alternative motive. We're always looking for it. Yeah, I think those are great points. And, you know, one quote that really just is kind of seared into my memory, and I think it is for many of my teammates too, is someone who told us, you know, foster youth will exit care with fewer relationships than they came in with. You just think, man, if this whole thing started because of a breakdown in relationships, that's how. You, that's ultimately why we got into foster care. There was a breakdown in relationships. How could it be that at the end of it, you could have fewer relationships coming out than coming in? And so that guides some of our thinking around it. And what, what can someone do? What can a case manager do? What can a system do? The first thing is to, from as soon as the young person enters care, the moment they, they enter care, we should be engaging with the supportive people in their lives. It can't be a downstream, oh, when you're turning 18. It has to be as soon as you turn as you enter the system. A goal of the system needs to be how can we help maintain and strengthen your supportive relationships for the duration of time that you're in it. So it's having a conversation with young people. Who do you want to make sure we're prioritizing having a relationship with? And yes, that has to do with what you hear 
the amount of truth you get will have to do with the nature of your relationship, but start with what you get and then work with helping to strengthen and maintain those relationships um, over time and have periodic check-ins about how those relationships are going. Then we got some really good tips from one of our sites around how you actually contact, let's say you're a social worker contacting one of those supportive people. What we heard is a huge takeaway is you don't want to scare them away because a call saying, hi, I'm from CPS and this person just gave into care and they say that they know you is a good way to get hung up on is what we've been told. So what you want to do is not start with and, and not assume that all supportive people have to be a placement option, the six O's point, but start by saying, hey, do you know extended family members in this young person's life? Hey, do you have, a, we were told to ask for things like a photo album or photos. Sometimes young people don't have mementos and things like that from when they get into foster care. And so having the supportive people to help with things like that can be really useful. Start with those smaller questions because, because the system is so interested in permanency for good reasons we understand, they will often only engage with these kinds of people if they think it can be a placement. So don't only be interested in supportive people if they can be in a placement. Supportive people can play a very important role in young people's lives, even beyond placement. And not that this should be the intention, sometimes supporting those relationships over time can help that develop into a placement. So it could actually also be the long-term placement goal um, sometimes. And then I would just say, again, periodically throughout the time in care, revisiting that. Because if the young person is in care for a long time, they will also be developing new relationships with the teacher, with the coach. And so how can we be nurturing and supporting those relationships even as they meet new people during during their time in care? Guys, I appreciate you guys diving deeper into kind of these tangible recommendations, really, because we've been – and the great thing about them is – we're talking about actions or behaviors, right? Things you can change your behavior tomorrow. You can ask those questions tomorrow and it doesn't cost anything. And normally it doesn't take up any more time than, than somebody's already uh, um, applying. But we, we, we do have, I'm sorry, Sarah. Well, I just, I, as you were speaking, I just, just thought of one other idea that might be useful too, which is I think, you know, when we talk about it this way, it can sound like, oh, for a social worker, this is just one more burden. This is like, I'm already overworked. I have so much to do. Like now I've got to maintain all of their supportive relationships too. Like that's a lot. But one way to think about it is that actually we could bring in these supportive people to pick up some of the slack and actually help with meet some of the needs of young people. So in that way, the social worker maybe doesn't have to be the one to write the resume with the young person. The social worker maybe doesn't have to be the one to go to the DMV and get the license. But if we can engage a supportive person, a coach, an aunt or uncle, you know, a, a best friend's mom, if we could engage people like this and they could help with the resume, they could help with the license, that actually could relieve pressure and burden off of social workers and then has the long-term benefit of once you eat, meet that 18, 21 milestone and the social worker goes away, I've actually had a chance to develop the relationship with the supportive person in a way that maybe I can lean on them after 18 or 21. So I just wanted to share that as another perspective. Yeah, it's not always saying that every supportive person has to be a placement option, but everybody can play a small role in somebody's team, right? And, you know, everybody's got, you know, picking up, you know, not necessarily pick up the slack, but just being there at a certain moment. Right. And then that starts to create a, create this thing of, hey, we're all in this together. And hopefully that can build some trust over time that, uh, hey, just just want want you to you know, be able to be there for for one moment here, one moment there. But then 
then we're all in this t together with a bunch more of a, uh, it's less adversarial, obviously. Um, so uh, where I was, where I was going, um, with, with the idea of, of really behaviors or actions yet, we are in a point as we're recording this in, in the spring of 2021, there are some short-term available chafee funds. And so I, I, I'd offer uh, for you guys to think of any other recommendations about those funds or maybe other available funds that maybe jurisdictions can leverage to maybe develop some better outcomes for, for youth aging out. Is there anything that pops into your head uh, about taking advantage of some funds available and how you'd best apply them? Some of the things that come up to me is, um when I think about Chafee funds, I think of two buckets. There is the bucket of Chafee funds that traditionally have been allocated to states, and there's the bucket of Chafee funds that the that Congress just approved. And the intent of this second wave of money was to be direct cash payments, um, for the most part, um, and some supports and some supports to young people. Um, and the reason I mention that is because I think it's important to note that some like relief money is needed to help young people literally solve their situation. But for more of the long-term goal of what Chafee was created for, I think that I literally go, like literally I think of how is it that Chafee dollars could be used to really fuel those developmental experiences. When I was 18, I had by the age of 18, I was a senior in high school and I had spent literally all four years of high school in the um, asset development program, learning how to buy a car, learning how to rent an apartment, doing all the PowerPoints with the pizza every single month. Here we are, here we're doing it. And then I saved money all through high school and it was time to buy a car. And then it was the funniest thing ever. My worker was like, oh no, I don't think you should get a car. And I was just like, wait, no, I know I'm prepared because you've spent four years teaching me month after month pizza after pizza that I it, like how to <laughs> change, like how to get a car. And so I was like, Oh, I'm going to go get a car. And I did it. I went and got myself a car. I went and got the insurance. I pulled all the strings I needed to pull to just do it myself because the system had trained me. And so when I think of the importance of these dollars, um, I think that those developmental experiences are critical because what I needed as the 18 year old high school senior to have a car is exactly the right amount of responsibility at that time for me um, to be able to be ready to then the next year live in my own apartment. And so taking care of that car, really realizing how things got, got broken and things came up and making the choice around it and how I almost screwed up, right? Like, and bought the wrong car was the foundation for me to be able to go ahead and, 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 and be living on my own and have that incremental um, stepping stone to more responsibility. Sixto Cancel, uh, Sarah Sullivan, I, I cannot thank you guys uh, enough, one, for spending the time with us here, but for what you've done to dive into, I guess, what, what originally started as an app to navigate the system and now turns into a map to hopefully reform the system. Um, uh, thank you guys so much. I um, want to remind everybody, if you, you head to this episode's page and you can check out the Aged Out report, um, and, and look at the work that Think of Us uh, is doing. Sarah and Sixto, thanks again. We appreciate your time. Thanks for your energy, your passion, uh, and, and your expertise in sharing it with us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Truly an honor. 
So if you haven't, I encourage you to check out part one of this conversation, where the insights regarding healing and dealing with trauma, centering youth in their preparedness, and helping youth build a supportive network are discussed. Now again, this is not to say employment, education, and housing aren't important, but the relationships and the emotions should be focused on as well to help support a more successful transition. We'll have links to the Aged Out Report, along with other resources supporting youth in transition, on this episode's webpage. Just head on over to childwelfare.gov, search podcasts, and you'll see this episode's page, along with webpages for all the episodes of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Hey, a, a reminder to just visit childwelfare.gov when you're looking to find information, best practices, reports, contact information, resources for yourself or your peers or, or the families that you work with. Now, these are vetted and relevant resources free of charge and approved by the Children's Bureau, all designed to help those within or connected to the child welfare field. Thanks again to Sixto Cancel and Sarah Sullivan with Think of Us. And of course, thanks to you for joining us here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.